It's Sabbath. Jesus has exhaled his last breath. God, the Messiah, is dead. Sunday is an eternity away. Resurrection is nowhere to be found. Only loss accompanies us to the side of the Marys as we sit opposite the tomb. How do we deal with loss? What does it even mean to die well? It seems paradoxical, uh, uh, even oxymoronic, like jumbo shrimp. <laughs> Plastic silverware. Yes, I'm calling your homes out. Working vacations. Dying well feels like two juxtaposing ideas that shouldn't fit together, and yet somehow they do. It's like me and barongs. You know what a barong is? It's a formal shirt that Filipinos wear. It's see-through. But they wear it to church. Yeah, that's right. And every time my mother-in-law goes to the Philippines or my father-in-law, they reach back to my wife and say, hey, we need to get your man a barong. But the thing is, there's not enough material in all of the Philippines to make a barong my size. And they bring it back, and the barong doesn't stretch. It's not a stretchy material. And yet somehow, I get that extra medium barong on me. <laughs> Juxtaposes. In a world that celebrates, protects cells, youthfulness, vitality, and life at the tune of billions of dollars every year through pills and medications, surgeries, creams, and gym memberships. We don't like the idea of death. In a world that would rather celebrate non-wrinkles, we don't like death. We've made growing old a disease. And death has become the antithesis of all things good. So Silent Sabbath feels a little deflating, maybe a little awkward. We want to rush past it to Sunday. We want to get to that resurrection. We want to we sing about the, the empty grave because Sabbath is silently painful. And yet, Sabbath is indeed a part of the Easter fabric. It isn't some transition between a horrible Friday and a glorious Sunday. It has its place in the story. There is place for it where we cannot see God. I think there is a hopeful place for it where we don't know what the outcome will look like. Nothing in this moment is guaranteed. No matter what we said before, no matter what we read prior to this moment, nothing in this moment is guaranteed, including the resurrection of Jesus. This is a silent Sabbath.
This is where we must almost literally come to a pause, to a rest, because we have no more strength to fight through. This is this kind of Sabbath. This empty Sabbath, as Barbara Taylor Brown, Brown Taylor puts it, has and gives meaning. What if there's a resurrection story in the resurrection story? Could there be a different kind of restoring that takes place at the tomb of our dreams, at the tomb of our relationships, at the tombs of our employment, at the tomb of our denomination, at the tomb of our finances, at the tomb of our world, at the tomb of all that we had hoped for? Maybe this empty Sabbath is fuller than we realize. As we look at our passage in the book of Matthew, Matthew's retelling, Matthew's account. We see two different ways to encounter and approach this very loss, this very difficult death, this, this silent Sabbath. Matthew may again, as we have been talking about over and over, be leaning back into the kingdom of heaven idea when he puts together these contrasting scenarios, two scenarios before him. Marcus Borg might recognize this first scenario as an alternative social vision. And the secondary or the contrasting scenario, Miguel A. Del Torres may consider the second one dominant culture. So we sit between two paths to encountering loss, one of an alternative social vision and one that just seems normative in what everyone else is doing. It has a tendency of oppression and self-centeredness. So we find ourselves in the book of Matthew, read eloquently a few moments ago, chapter 27, verses 57 to 66. What we find here is in verses 57 to 61, there's a gentleman by the name of Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, and he makes his way to Pilate. He gets, uh, he gets access to Pilate. So he uses his influence to persuade Pilate to let him take Jesus to be prepared and buried. And then we hear along that scenario that the Marys come along, Mary Magdala, and the other Mary, known as the other Mary, sit at the tomb opposite all night. Something the disciples couldn't do. Then starts a secondary scenario. Maybe it's chiastic in its form. So the chief priests, we, we learn about in 62, they find access and they get presence with Pilate. And they come to Pilate. They use their influence to persuade Pilate that Jesus is still a threat. Yes, Jesus who is dead, who lies breathless before the people is still a threat. Pilate releases them to move forward with guards to stand guard over the tomb. You see the two scenarios. You see them. 
It almost draws a contrasting picture for you of how to deal with, process, encounter, and approach this death, and how otherwise done to guard against what may come next from death. We live in a world that's very distracted. We get distracted because if we don't get distracted, we begin to feel our human emotions, and that's difficult and hard. We see here that in the first scenario, someone is digging deep to feel their human emotions about this loss. And then there are others who are protecting against possible outcomes from loss. I want to look really quickly and compare. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered to give it to him. Notice how he uses his influence and his privilege and his power to do good. Notice that in his space, now in the other gospels, and we don't want to, to spend in because we're in Matthew, but the other gospels account for him being someone as part of the council. So that he obviously has influence. He obviously is rich according to Matthew. He gets before Pilate and he uses his influence for Jesus' body. In the contrast of that, we find that the Pharisees use their their privilege, and their power that they would create more problems, that they would harm. How do we use our privilege, our influence, our power in times of need when other lives are going through a death or a loss? How do you use your privilege? Whether you know it or not, whether you gained it from your own abilities or it was given to you and you are unaware of it, privilege might be yours, so you must use it always for the good of the kingdom. Privilege comes in all shapes and sizes and forms. Privileges come to those of us in certain classes, those of us of certain races, those of us who... Um, have inside track about a particular group. We all have privilege one way or another. The question is, how are we using that privilege? Union called me a couple years back. They said, hey, we know that um, you've been doing these marches. Another life had been taken in our country unjustly. Me and a few pastors, I gathered up our young pastors and all the pastors who wanted to, and, and we helped uh, start doing a few marches. We did them in L.A. And the one in Los Angeles, I partnered there with my good friend Donovan Childs, and they had gotten together the church, and the chief police came out, and he joined the march, and it was a beautiful time. There we were marching together, hand in hand, Cars tooting their horn. Hey, hey, keep up the good. Praise the Lord. Yes, I made shirts that, that promoted Adventists are people who stand up for those who need to be stood up for. I made my president wear it. He said, do I wear this? You wear it. Okay. I made our secretariat wear it. Our officers, our executives, we all wore it. We walked together, all of us. And it was a beautiful time in L.A. 
couple weeks later, I get the call from our union. One of the union groups said, hey, uh, you know, you got those cool shirts and stuff. Would you come out and, and, and let us use some of those shirts? And can we, can we, do, can we collaborate and, and march together out here out, out after the union? I said, sure. I grabbed the shirts. I took it over there. I got some of my young adults from across the SCC, and we went, and it was at Westlake. And if you don't know Westlake, Westlake is different from downtown L.A. Downtown L.A. is where I feel very at home. I eat the street corner food. I hang out. I, I know the lingo. That is my first language, ghetto. <laughs> Westlake is a different place. The people there speak different and listen to different music. And so when I got there, I didn't realize exactly what I was getting into. I get there and I realize, whoa, there are a lot of white people here. I got nervous. I said, oh man, what's going to happen? And I get to the march and the union officers, and then they, they got the shirts and they were putting it on and our young adults had them on. I was feeling a little uneasy, not because of the crowd. The crowd was beautiful and, and beautiful. And, and the police that were there, oh man, they were just fantastic. Great, great, great people. And, um, it wasn't them. It was individuals who were in their big vehicles, driving up and down yelling out things that Christians shouldn't yell out. We think it, but we probably shouldn't yell it out. They had these massive flags in their trucks, and they thought that what they were doing was patriotic and Jesus-like. And as I'm marching, I get nervous. I'm worried. I don't know what to do because I'm, I'm feeling a little unformed. And I think, what if everyone in this crowd, because the majority of them were not people of color, what if they just all decided to turn on me right now? Like, what if they're marching along and they're like, wait a minute, we don't want this. Wait, what are you doing here? I don't know what to do at that point. And so I'm marching and I'm nervous and I'm thinking, maybe I should sneak out to my car and just drive off. This is going well for everyone else, good for them. And, and, and as I'm walking along, there's, there's just this chill of fear, not only for the loss of life that we're marching for, but the possible damage of my own life. And then let me tell you, let me tell you what spoken to me that day. What allyship happened. The powerful voice that moved me from frightened about what may happen to feeling connected and secure. It was the voice of a three-year-old in a stroller next to me. The mother was pushing him, and this little three-year-old, this beautiful, blonde-haired, white little boy, he says, he's got, this, he's, got his little, he's got his little flag, and he's just pumping it, and he says, justice for all. Justice for all. Justice for all. And let me tell you, he had no idea. But as his chubby little toddler hand is pumping, and he cries out for justice for all of us, it brought me safety and security. Could you imagine this little baby who had no idea what effect he had on a big old Tongan man like myself? Privilege comes in different forms, in different ways. We must own it when we see it. We must always use it to properly uplift the kingdom and those who need our voices. 
Secondly, posture. Verse 59 compared with verse 62 to 65. So Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb. Whose tomb is this? Joseph's tomb. Which he had hewn in the rock and then rolled a great stone to the door of the, of the tomb and went away. We're contrasting that with 62 to 60, 65. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that, there, that what the imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will raise, rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised from the dead and the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it secure as you can. You see, I, I think here's a beautiful contrast. Joseph, who goes and uses his position and his influence to better Jesus. Remember, Jesus is a different class, eco-class system than Joseph was. Jesus was not wealthy. Jesus had not influence in those circles. Joseph did. So Joseph uses his influence to gather Jesus in verse in chapter 25, just a few chapters before that, we hear Jesus said that you have done this unto me when you have done it unto the least of these. So Jesus in this class system is the lesser, lesser of the two. Joseph goes out of his way to use his influence to bring Jesus in. And then Joseph, Joseph begins to clean him, wrap him, and put him in the tomb. In order for Joseph to clean Jesus, which is a dead body, what happens to Joseph? He becomes unclean. Joseph gives up his cleanliness. His ability to hold influence that Jesus, the lesser, the dead, might be honored. Last night, a word from Jason, Pastor Jason. We must choose what we would die for or what we will allow to die for us. Joseph chooses to allow his class to die that Jesus may be honored. He gives up his own tomb for Jesus. This was his tomb, hewn from a rock. He, he, this was perfectly made for Joseph. I couldn't imagine how much money he spent on that state-of-the-art tomb rock that rolls away. I'm sure not very many people got that in, in Joseph's day, but Joseph had it. And it may not seem very awesome to us today, but you know, when you're like the thing, when you're like state of the art in the moment, that always seems to pass. State of the art in the 80s. You all remember state of the art in the 80s? Y'all know what this is? Hey, young people, quiz, what is this? Oh, some might know. That's a window, right? That was state of the art, man. Today, they don't know that. They're like, what, what are you doing? What is that? We do this. Hey, Siri, put the windows up. <laughs> Joseph gives up a piece of what is most dear to him, that this lesser class, body who knows nothing, may be honored. Now, these gentlemen, the Pharisees, 
They are the ones who took Jesus' word seriously, ironically enough. They are the ones who took Jesus seriously. The disciples weren't thinking about anything on the third day happening to Jesus. They had hidden, they were gone. But these Pharisees, they came to Pilate and they said, Pilate, listen, this is what he was saying. We've got to take that seriously because if they have a plan to make that body disappear, this is going to be problematic for all of us. And what they were doing is they were convincing Pilate that if Jesus does rise again from the dead or if the people are led to think that he came back, that his agency, that Pilate's agency to wash his hands of Jesus, the king of Jews, will come back to haunt him because his decision to back away from Jesus has turned on him when the dead comes back to life. You see what happened to Pilate here. When Joseph uses his influence for good, Pilate is led to a wholesome decision. And when the Pharisees uses their, their positioning to coerce and to push and to control, Pilate is moved into a corner of making bad decisions. How do you and I carry others into the experience of our losses? How do you and I carry others into that experience as Pilate was carried into the experiences of these two different parties? How do we implicate those around us into our brokenness? Joseph was broken, but his broken was a loss and a pain. The Pharisees' broken was a brokenness of control and anxiety of manipulation and the loss that they were going to spill out into something more. They couldn't lose control. As human beings, the fear of losing control causes us to do some dire things. Turn to somebody right now and say, it's okay to let it go. Tell someone else, it's okay to let it go. All this happened because the Pharisees were not ready to accept the loss. In our lives, are we ready to accept what comes of the losses in our life? Are you ready to accept it, release control, and sit be present before it. Finally, presence. Mary Magdalene, verse 61, and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. In contrast, we're here in 66, so they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. Verse 66 was focused on keeping things from moving forward, not wanting to see death spark whatever comes next. We've got to control all of it. I, I, I don't want anything to get out of control. I, I, I don't know what things look like on the other side, so I don't, I don't want to sit in it. It's too painful. Sometimes our loss and our pain is so great that we don't want to sit in it and be present in it. But it is not until we begin to sit and be present for that pain till we can get healing from that pain. 61, Mary of Magdala and the other Mary are sitting. They're not standing, they're not guarding, they're not defensive, they're sitting. They're sitting in this space. Mary Magdalene, 
She sits there before the tomb, bewildered in pain, lost, angry, and still yet there is a willingness to sit with God through it all, a foundational trust between them. I don't know if you're, what you're struggling through. I don't know what loss you've got. I don't know what death has come to your house. I don't know what you have to wrestle with, but I pray that you sit there with God. That you leave space to sit in that brokenness with God. There's a foundational trust. Richard Rohr says it this way. It takes a foundational trust to fall and not fall apart. The psalmist, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And then the psalmist lands his, his cries with, but I trust in your unfailing love. I'm in a Sabbath, silent Sabbath pain. I don't know what the outcome looks like. I've got, I've got questions. I'm doubting. I don't know if, if, if all of this makes sense, but I will sit here with you, oh God, through it all. Now, finally, my favorite character, the other Mary. Man, that's a, that's a tough title to have, the other Mary. That's like, the, that's just another way of saying the least favorite Mary. Oh, you're that person's brother. Oh, okay. No, no, I'm me. I, I'm nobody else's brother. I'm me, right? Well, we, every time I, I tell people, I said, I'm Tongan, everyone always says, oh, what is that? Are you Hispanic? I said, no, I'm from the South Pacific. Oh, where? What? Tonga. And then I say, do you know Samoans? Oh, of course we know where Samoa is. We love Samoans. Yeah, well, we're the less popular version of them. <laughs> we're the other Mary to the Samoans. <laughs> the other Mary. Now, this is my opinion. But it's in my opinion that the other Mary is there not just for Jesus' body, but for Mary of Mary Magdalene's spirit. She comes along to sit at the tomb with her friend, Mary. For though God draws close in times of loss, it can most readily be felt through another human's touch. So the other Mary comes with Mary to the tomb because Jesus lies there, but not just because Jesus lies there, but because Mary of, Ma Mary of Magdala sits there. And she comes to sit with her friend. It's a beautiful theological idea that when we are in the depth of loss and reeling from death, that God is closest to us more than any other time. That's beautiful. And yes, the cross is most prevalent when we are in our winters. But the job of the other Mary in the moment isn't to do deep theological dive into the faith practice. It is to sit with her friend's loss. It is to be present in her pain. It is to question and hurt and cry together. It is to be open and vulnerable to each other and in return find solace and healing. And in that pain, it may not necessarily be our job to answer whether or not it was God's will that things are going the way they are. 
or whether or not this is God's timing that someone has died, that you have lost your job. Maybe this world is just a horrible place sometimes. Maybe that God is in control of all things, so he did this. And I can't seem to, 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 to rescue and reconcile that with a loving God that I know. After all, during this Sabbath, heaven is silent as well. I believe that it is in our primary calling for others through the pain and the loss and death or endings that we be present. That is it. The other Mary is present. I may not be able to help you understand everything about God, mainly because I don't know it. I may not be able to, to uh, wax eloquently in my words with 400 verses connected to it that'll make you feel good. But this is a silent Sabbath, and all I'm required to do as the other Mary is to sit with you. I close. Um, I had pastored another church for the death of my pet. Yeah. I had pastored in another church for about 14 years before I moved into the conference. And when I first, when I first, when we first moved from a gym to an actual church, there was a small group of um, older people. And we talked and we said, hey, let's just stay together. Let's, let's do this together. Let's grow together. And there was the idea, yeah, let's do that, Pastor. That's great. Let's, let's do it together. In my first sermon, I get up and I'm preaching and I tell them about my name. My name is Icky Timey. First name Icky, last name Timey. Hell yeah, praise the Lord. And I said, this is the name my parents gave me. They didn't give me the name Pastor. That's just my title. So I said, so when you see me, you can call me Icky. So he said, hello, Icky. And I had everybody say, hello, Icky. Hello, Icky. Happy Sabbath. Happy Sabbath, Icky. Okay. As I'm walking out of the back, I stand there, and these, these beautiful, beautiful older people come out, and they're shaking my, oh, thank Pastor. That was great. Good to meet you, Pastor. You know, uh, and then one lady, she comes, and her name was Alberta Jackson. She's African-American. She was proper, dressed to the T's. She came up to me. She looked at me. She had to be three feet tall. She looked me straight up into my eyes. She said, Pastor, God has given you this calling. So for as long as you and I know each other, you will be known as Pastor Timey. And I was like, you can call me whatever you want. Because I'm squirreled right now. She says, don't mistake me. You will always be Pastor Timey. She sat in all the board meetings. She came all to leadership stuff. She's the one person, you know, where you're like putting together committees. You're like, I hope they don't say yes. And she always said yes. And she always showed up. And she was always five minutes early. And when I'd come off that pulpit, she'd always meet me at the door. She said, Pastor Timey, that was a good word today but I wish you'd wear a tie. 
<laughs> we wrestled and tussled and, and, and worked and debated. We laughed, we ate through my whole tenure at this church. I get a call one day. Alberta. Alberta! Hey, Pastor Timey. I'm in the hospital. What happened? Uh, they don't know. I'm coming. I drive over there. Alberta and I sit. She's in the bed looking proper. I don't know how you can look proper in the hospital system looking proper. Dressed to the T's. <laughs> Where'd you get that? Shouldn't you be wearing a gown? Don't worry about it, Pastor. We sit and talked and talked and talked. And I said, okay, Alberta, let me pray with you. And I pray with her. And I said, how long are you going to be here? She said, I don't know. I said, okay, I'll come back. I'll come back. I'll come back tomorrow. I came back tomorrow, Alberta, and I sat. We kept doing that. I don't know. I came back, sat. And finally, I get a call from Alberta. She says, Pastor, I, I don't know how much I'm going to, how much longer I'm going to make it. Would you come visit with me? Absolutely. Come into that room. Alberta and I are sitting, talking as usual, proper as right as usual. Towards the end of our hour conversation, I'm the worst with visitations, by the way. I just want to let you know. I, I always like, I'm going to be like 15 minutes. And then I get there, and then like four hours later, I'm like, man, I really got to leave. We're there for over an hour, and I said, uh, Sister Jackson, I got to go. She says, yeah, I know. I said, uh, will I see you tomorrow? She says, I don't know. I don't think so. So I said, hey, if I don't see you tomorrow, I'll see you in the morning. We prayed. I get up to leave, and I'm walking towards the door, and I'm just trying to hold it together. You know when you try to hold things together? It's hard. I'm trying to hold it together. I get to the door, and I hear this. Icky. <laughs> and I was like, what? Was that the intercom? What? <laughs> she says, Icky. I turn around. I said, excuse me, Sister Jackson. That is not my name. You will call me pastor. She starts laughing. She says, you know what I love about you? I said, my preaching. She says, no, man, those were awful. <laughs> what? How dare you? He laughed. She said, all my years in church, I've never had the privilege of calling my pastor's friend. Thank you for being my friend. I left. 
the scope of ministry changed for me that day. It's not about great production or phenomenal preaching. It's about the willingness to be present with each other. On this silent Sabbath, I can't tell you whether Jesus rises tomorrow. I can't tell you whether it's God's will that your life is the way it is. Personally, I don't think so. But what I can tell you is through it all, we can be present together. And when you and I are present together in that love, God is there.